so you remember the last month or so, we, we were putting together this care package for the women's, uh, Piedmont Women's Center, and so that got delivered to them. I, mean, I don't know if you guys saw the mound of stuff back there. It was just, really, huh? The baby, bundle. the baby bundle, that's what we call it, okay. So, dear friends at Calvary Chapel, can we thank, how can we thank you for your huge abundance of baby supplies? Our supplies had gone, gotten a little low, so we were thrilled and excited to see all that you collected for us. Each of our clients receives a large bag of baby supplies after the baby comes. This lets her know that the people in our community care about her and her baby. I must tell you what a blessing and joy Abigail and Naomi are to the Piedmont Women's Center. Their love and their encouragement to us is always a blessing. So God bless you and from all the staff at Women's Center. So, pretty cool. Father, we thank you again, Lord, just for uh, your faithfulness to us, Lord. Another day that you've brought us through. Uh, We've labored and worked hard today, and we just ask that you would strengthen our minds and our hearts as we just take the time to lift our voices, our spirits before you. We pray that you just simply refresh us and fill us again, Lord. Let us overflow in your love and your goodness. Bless your word, bless your, our worship time, our prayer time, and the time that we spend with each other, Lord. Continue to bond us together in your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Ever be on my lips, ever be on my 
And I 
Galatians chapter 2. Don't be carried away. We're going to pick it up in verse 11 through 21. One of the saddest verses in the scriptures is in the history of Israel. At the end of that first generation that entered into the promised land, they had settled in under Joshua, the eldership. And they followed faithfully to the Lord until the elders that outlived Joshua passed away. And so now we're into the third generation, as it were, of people out of Egypt. And then it says there that men begin to do that which was right in their own eyes. That is humanism in its simplest form. And we're all self-willed and self-centered. There's a real serious problem that settles in when that becomes a reality in a 
society's life and in an individual's life. It's first individual, then it becomes societal. You're, you have no foundation. You become the judge of all things. You, you judge life through your eyes and through your experience and your framework. And that is a scary thing. And we see, we see this happening in our culture now. We're a humanistic, post-Christian culture. And everybody's doing that which is right in their own eyes. I, you know, we have this technology thing going on. This is sort of what got me on this thing, thinking about this. Uh, you know, you you have the little podcasts that are just everywhere, right? Everybody's sharing their opinions, you know. And so I had uh, have a couple of news places that I like to listen to on uh, occasion, and so they have their podcasts because everything's being censored now on the conservative side. So you got to, you know, they're getting whacked, and you can't like, oh, thank you very much. So they have making alternative ways to get to their what they put together. And so I was uh, working in that app, and so I had this little situation, you know, like any 20-minute episode, that's about all I can handle anyway <laughs> when it comes to news, a little 20-minute podcast, and so there's other ones like that. So I just begin to scroll through, like, oh, well, let's just see what else is in there. And I was like, on and on and on. And I got to thinking about this. Of If you are the judge as an individual of, of what's right and wrong and what's good and evil and all those things, and you've got so many voices of everybody doing this, so you can pick and choose. I mean, just an endless amount of noise. Uh, and, and if you do that, you're just left to your own devices, your own feelings. You have no moorings. You have no anchor. And, and for the believer to, to, to leave the Word of God and not have a foundation of something to, to filter that's a scary place to be. That's why Paul talks about the winds that blow through the church, the winds of doctrine. Just because you're sitting in church, just because you're part of a, a, a good church doesn't mean you can't get carried away and caught up in some of this stuff. We really have to let our roots grow, grow down deeply in the scriptures and in the word of God. You know, you know Jesus said the end times would be what kind of times? A time of deception. He warned us about that. And and not, you know, and we're warned in Scripture not to lean to our own understanding, but to just search the Scriptures. And so, the Galatian church, one of the first churches that Paul visited in that area, the middle part of Turkey, that that region, and planted these, they got ripped off. They received stuff from. Actually, unfortunately, it wasn't on their iPhone or listen to somebody's podcast. It was somebody from Jerusalem. It was people in the church, religious people come in and, and, and sort of were making havoc in their lives because they were undermining the grace of God and the gospel of grace that they had learned and received Christ under, and now they're being told something different, and they're being carried off with this. And, and so this is really what happens in the first couple chapters. And so I'm going to spend a little time reviewing this for us to just get the framework, because this is the first epistle Paul wrote. He, he almost can see that he's he's this freshness, this this uh, zeal. <laughs> I mean, this guy from what he was until you know he's probably fifteen, twenty years into his conversion, probably at least at this point. But he's got all that Jewish background and the knowledge of the Old Testament, and he's he's well equipped to do what he's doing, right? 
but he there's there's just something there's some tenacity within him that that he's blown away that these people who he loves and spent time with and got them started right down the path of being in the kingdom of God walking with Jesus that they would turn away so quickly what are you doing and when we think about that when I I look at what's going on in the church today and some and it's happening in our own church here that's why we need to pray how can people get so off track because of this, you know, crazy thing that's happening in the world and to be influenced and brainwashed, and I'm going to use that word brainwashed by the, what's out there to cause us to fear and to not put our faith in God. I'm not saying that, that what we're experiencing isn't real or that it's totally phony. Yes, there's a virus and it can kill people. But it's not as contagious. We, we understand what we're working with now. Maybe we overreacted in the beginning, but come on, can we get beyond this now? But to be in fear at this point, six, eight months later, when we know what we're working with, and you're still using this as an excuse to not come to church and not be with your brothers and sisters? I think there's something going on here that's not good. And I'll leave it at that. The Galatians' error that they were making here had two forms. And both of them Paul wanted to deal with. And he's not messing around. Because he understands the eternal consequences that are online here. Not only destiny, but, but the work of the Lord in itself. Because if you don't have your foundation right, if you're not sure and steadfast in your foundation, what, what kind of life are you going to build thereafter? And so these are very important things to understand. The first teaching that was being laid upon them that you, your obedience had to be to the law. Not just faith, but you have to obey the law. You have to mingle your obedience to the law with faith in order to be totally justified by God. So in other words, you aren't really justified in the sight of God unless you're doing this according to the law. And for these guys coming from Jerusalem, it was circumcision. He's going to get into that a little bit later on. The second thing where... Was a, followed this really was this is how you're made perfect this is how you're made complete unless you do this you're not really there you haven't really arrived yet anytime people try to lay that trip on you just walk away so he and Paul demonstrates the he, he always goes always go to the scriptures for what you believe and what you stand for if you can't find it in the scriptures, then you probably have reason to doubt that conviction. But your conviction should always arise out of the scriptures. And so Paul goes back to the time before Israel received the law. He goes back to their father, Father Abraham, right? What does it tell us in Genesis fifteen six? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. There's no law here. Later on in that chapter, verse 18, Yahweh establishes a covenant with Abraham of which he made circumcision, the outward demonstration or the outward sign of that covenant between him and who would follow, that is, the Jewish nation. And it was a symbol. It was an outward demonstration of an inward happening. The cutting away of the stony heart to give on a, a heart of flesh that could feel and alive to God. And so this is very important that, that 
Paul established that truth. You know, that, that portion of Scripture and that experience that Abraham had there in chapter 15 was 430 years before the law was ever brought forth. So Paul establishes that uh, as part of his doctrine. Now, uh, there are four things here that we kind of already went through um, that Paul is reciting uh, from his conversion and his calling uh, that took place, that led up to this. And what he is trying to show is that he is on equal footing in, in, in regards to apostolic authority. And not only he's on, on an equal footing with them, but he did not receive what he received in, in regards to the gospel from them. He received it from the Lord Jesus himself. It came by revelation. And so uh, he summarize, you can, we'll summarize it here if we can uh, for us. Because I think if you understand what's going on in these first two chapters, then you're going to understand the remaining four that we're going to go through. So uh, I, that's why I really I'm taking the time to, to labor through this a little bit. Uh, essentially, he, he, he gets saved and he doesn't go to, to Jerusalem for a number of years. And he gets, a, at that point, early on, uh, when he does go, uh, three years or so, he meets with Peter, and then he bumps into James, so to speak, and spends a little time with him. And, and, then, and then he came, uh, left there, and he went to Syria, where he's from there, Tarsus, the, you know, up around the corner from uh, Antioch there, uh, kind of, actually, kind of between Antioch, where he went, to, and ministered, uh, and Galatia. He just kind of up and around the corner if you're familiar with the geography there. And so he stays there for a number of years in Syria and Cilicia and ministering there. And so he's not even, at this point, you know, we're talking 14, 15 years. He's not even connected at all with Jerusalem. And so he's trying to substantiate the fact that he did not receive this gospel from men. This gospel of grace came by revelation from Jesus Christ, and that's important to him. So when he did go there, he does tell them uh, that, you know, in fact, they all kind of stood together at that time. And I, I think it, this would be the visit, uh, not Acts 15. Acts 15, when they do have the Jerusalem Council meeting, would have come followed much later on. And actually, it was after this thing had run its course, and they finally said, we have got to, to lay this down. And so all this this experience that he's talking about in the first two chapters here happened uh, probably after his conversion and, and then we're talking about the visit in Acts 11. So if you guys remember that from uh, last week there. Notice when you're reading through here, um, in verse 11 of the ch first chapter, his calling, he talks about his calling, and then uh, he uses the word then, or it's the English word then, verse 18, and then verse... 1 of chapter 2, then 3 years, then 14 years. So he's breaking it down in a chronological order, and he's substantiating this whole fact of how he related to the people there. So I, you know, I don't need to beat that to death, but you, you kind of get it. But I think these events that he's going here parallel to that first visit there uh, in Acts 11, 19 through 21. And, then, and so he has, he's up in Tarsus. He went back home, essentially, for a few years. And then... When the church suffered persecution, and it, you know, and they were scattered, a number of the Jewish brethren ended up in Antioch, which is kind of Lebanon, north of, north of Lebanon, modern-day Lebanon. And, and Barnabas was there. And Barnabas had met with Paul uh, when he had 
had one of those visits to Jerusalem, and now he's in Antioch and says, look, I'm going to go find Paul. And so he goes up there and, and brings him down, and Paul becomes part of that leadership there in Antioch, and they're ministering to the Lord when Acts 13, verse 1 takes place. As they fasted and prayed and ministered unto the Lord, the Holy Spirit said unto them, Separate unto me Saul and Barnabas for the work whereon I have called them. And thus we begin the missionary journeys of Paul, of which Galatia was into that region. They went to Cyprus first, and they went on into Asia Minor, and that's when they planted these first churches. And thus we have this relationship with Paul and the Galatians. So now you, you can understand, having done all that, why... What we're about to read here, we are going to get to it. <laughs> this work is exploding in Antioch. There are a lot of Jewish brothers because of the, the persecution and the scattering. But there's also a, a great number of Gentiles. So you have this major issue in the first church, the early church, was how do the Jews and the Gentiles intermingle and relate to one another? both on a theological level, but also on a social level. Are we going to eat together? All through the Old Testament, all the way, all that, the, all that these Jewish people had learned through, through generations, separation from the world. You don't intermingle with the Gentiles. You don't eat with them because in eating with them, you're, you have a spiritual, theological symbolism going on here. You're eating the same food that I'm eating, and that means we're one with each other, and that can't be. A Jew cannot become one with a Gentile. They are the unwashed and unclean. They don't, they're, they're separate. They're under the gods of the, of the age. They're following these foreign gods. We can't, we can't have that. And so there was that separation. But apparently what was happening, because they were filled with the Spirit, they understood grace, they were walking by faith and accepted by God, not on the basis of works. These guys were having tremendous fellowship with one another. And I think that's when we pick up the story here in verse 11 of chapter 2, of which we'll read through verse 21 and try to get through it tonight. Now, when Paul, or Peter, had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For certain men came with, from James he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing that those were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, and so that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. And when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, being a Jew, live in the manner of the, of the Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel the Gentiles to live as the Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ, not, of, not by works of the law, for by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. But if we, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners. Is Christ therefore the minister of sin? Well, certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, died to the law, that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. 
In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. So this is a very powerful testimony of, again, of Paul's authority, but also of the struggle that was going on in the early church there. You know, Paul mentions later on uh, in Corinthians, he makes, a, he makes a statement to them about heresy. There, there must needs be heresy among you so that that which is true and right can be exposed or made manifest. And so what does that mean? Well, I think in practical terms, that means when we see error, we are taught by the Holy Spirit, that's not right. (laughs) We just have discernment and we recognize that's not right. What we're experiencing, hearing, or seeing, and then by knowing what's not right, we're able to really verify what is right. You, does that make sense? You, you track with that? And so that's, a, that's sort of kind of what's going on. I am glad. We should thank the Lord that this happened so that the church c- could understand how to work through the issues. We're not perfect people. You know, it's often been said, you know, you'll, you, you know you're looking for a church. You don't look for a perfect one because you won't find one. And if you happen to find one, don't join it because you'll mess it up. We're just not perfect people. We're fallen people. And so we, it's, it's, it, what it takes is, is it takes the, a loving attitude to deal with the things that arise that are wrong or if we do get off track or if someone does make a mistake. I, I in no way, and none of us here, should, should be looked down on, our, uh, on Peter for what happened. We're all prone. That just shows you. Here is an apostle. Here's a guy who spent three and a half years with Jesus, who was on the Mount of Transfiguration, who had a vision in, in you know, chapter 11 of Acts, you know, the, the, the sheet let down from heaven, you know, and rise, Peter, kill and eat, you know, not so, all that, all those Gentile eating things. No, no, I've not eaten anything unclean, you know, and and the Lord's trying to show him at that point. He, so he, how could this guy who had heavenly revelation that they were not supposed to, you know, disfellowship the Gentiles, but to welcome them in and God had accepted them and cleansed them. How could he possibly, after all of that, and that previous life experience and being filled with the Holy Spirit and working miracles through his ministry, you know, you get the idea. How could you possibly fall into this trap, you know? Well, that just goes to show you how we can get horizontal and we can be intimidated. And actually, this is what's happening in the church today. And we don't even know it. When we bend the knee in the church to BLM and some of these other things, white privilege, oh, come on. This is a nebulous thing floating around out there with no moorings whatsoever. And for them to just continue to project guilt on us, give me a break. Oh, you're not being very sensitive. Well, you know, Maybe I'm not, but I don't think you're being sensitive to the people who are not guilty of what you're projecting on them either. So, you know, you're, these people are actually guilty of what they're projecting. And it's not just that black lives matter. It is that all lives matter. What about the millions of babies that are being aborted? Does their lives matter? 
I, I'm just, it just, it, it galls me the, the really the hypocrisy, the double standards are un, just beyond measure. And so I will not bend the knee to that kind of stuff and I'm not going to bow to it nor give it, it an audience. It's, it's, it's untrue. It's not, tr- it's not based in truth at all. But it's easy to be intimidated. Well, yeah, the, you look back through church history. We, it's pretty ugly. Well, let's just be honest here, folks. The church history is pretty bad. There's no defending that. But Jesus isn't bad. You can criticize the church for its, its warts and all its problems and the persecutions and stuff that we did to, that was done in the name of Christ. Guilty as charged. Just look at the life of Christ. You want to judge Christianity by the church, that's a big mistake. You judge Christianity by the Lord Jesus Christ, by what Jesus said. Because he didn't have issues whatsoever. The church, not so much. We have them. So I'm not going to throw Peter under the bus here. It's easy to give in to social pressure. Paul wrote about this, and this is what it comes down to. For I know in me, this is Romans seven eighteen, that is my flesh, nothing good dwells. For the will for to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. And when we look horizontal for what we've been given vertically in Christ, we will fall into those traps. We it's we have to answer the question is Jesus enough for me? Is Jesus Christ enough for me? And when we can be content with that, not looking for acceptance or the praise of men, because that's what Peter was like, okay, what are they going to say? What are these guys going to tell James when they go back? You know what Peter was doing? This is social pressure. It's, it's real. And if we aren't walking tight... If we're more concerned about what people think than what God thinks, we're going to fall into that trap. It really boils down to what saith the Lord. I will stand before him. And so these guys, it was, it was, you can see what's going on here. Could you, you know, just try to imagine this. They're having an agape feast, right? Think back here in the little room here where we have our little dinners, right? And You've got Jews and Gentiles, right? Pastor Chuck walks in. <laughs> you know, somebody, somebody in the Calvary Chapel movement that we, you know, that we, he's not going to walk in. Okay, you know that, right? <laughs> but somebody of, of that caliber, the, the, the leadership. And in this case, it's Jew and Gentile. But it's that kind of situation. They're eating, they're having great fellowship, and then these guys walk in and Peter's like, what are they going to think? I'm eating with Gentiles. <gasps> He's conflating Old Testament conviction of the Jews with the New Testament grace where it doesn't matter. It's all, it all got hung on the cross with Jesus. There's no separation anymore. We're now one. Jew and Gentile, we're one. He's pulling back and he's creating separation. That's what Paul's 
saying, look, you can't do that, bro. Public, public failure, public sin needs to be dealt with publicly. Paul wasn't trying to like get one over on him. Well, finally, I can show these people that I'm really an apostle because I'm bringing it to Peter. It has nothing to do with that. That is not the heart of Paul whatsoever. Paul, in love, is saying, how do you think the Gentiles are feeling about right now? What are we, chopped liver? I mean, you know, wait. I mean, Peter, we were having a good time and now, now we're no good? Now we're, we're dogs, we're unclean? You know, it's not hard to imagine the emotion that was going on there. So Paul rescued the situation in a very gentle way. I don't sense any anger. I was streamed to the face. Now, you can read that in there if that's your personality. He just said, hey, look, Pete, no, this is, not, this is not right. You're Jewish. These are Gentiles. You know, we just read through there what he said. Just kind of break it down here. I, when he's in verse, verse 18, verse 14 rather, when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, that is the issue. We have to be straightforward. Some people don't like that. I've been accused of being that way. You think? <laughs> I try not to be harsh, but sometimes I am straightforward. I think that's a good thing. You can do, you can speak, we're to speak the truth in love. The idea is uh, straightforward here is orthopodio. We get our word orthopedics. Or so, so essentially he's saying they were not walking orthopedically. They were not walking in an unwavering and really in a sincere way. It was now we're play acting. And that's not good. This isn't, you're not walking with straight feet. And so that's why, that's why it had to be confronted publicly. You're stumbling the Gentiles. You're, you've been saying one thing, you've been acting this way, and now, oh, but now in reality, you don't really meet, that's not really true by the way you're acting. So you, you, it's not hard to figure out what he's going here. And so it was coming uh, back to this major point of how a person is justified. How are you justified? How is it that you and I can stand before God? This is a big deal. This is what makes the, the letter to the Romans so powerful. Paul breaks down salvation so clearly. I mean, it's kind of hard, some of the way, the way it's written, and there's a lot of theology there. But it's justification, sanctification, and glorification. That's what he covers. Past, present, and future salvation as it regard, in regards to mankind. And how you start, how you get right with God is so critical. It is, it is, it be, it is the matter of life and death. If a person thinks they can be justified by their works before God, they will never enter the kingdom. I'm good enough for God, is what that says. When you th- say your works are sufficient to allow you to enter into paradise, and that's not what the scripture teaches at all. We are justified by faith. And what that means is, just I, I like the way it's broken down there, justified. Just as if I had never sinned. How can I possibly as a man present myself before God in that manner? 
How could I possibly do anything to wipe the slate clean to appear before God just as though I had never sinned? It cannot happen. I couldn't do enough good deeds. I couldn't slaughter enough animals. I couldn't cover myself with enough blood to make myself acceptable to God. It was only through substitutionary sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ that mankind could be forgiven. And Paul will not budge from that, and neither should we. It has nothing to do with works whatsoever. It's by faith only. In verse 18, and we'll, I'm going to wrap it up here shortly. He says, if I build those things again which I had destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. And then he uses the word in verse 17, if we seek to be justified, we who are justified by Christ, we ourselves are also found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin. Using the word sinners and the word transgressors, he is really trying to these are these are important words to understand. One is an outward thing and one is an inward thing. The word sinner is hamartia uh, and it's it's like a person who they observe the letter of the law but they totally ignore the spirit of the law. So this is what the Jews were guilty of. They were doing it outwardly, but inwardly they were full of dead men's bones. They, they had eyes full of adultery. They were liars. They were covetous. I mean, the list that Jesus used there in Matthew just, I mean, scoriated these men. Just unbelievable. These were the gatekeepers, and he lacerated them, spiritually speaking, for their sins. I mean, just laid them bare. But they were sinners and unwilling to meet, meet it so. And so... The word transgressors is parabates, and that's the idea of disregarding the spirit of the law. So you, you, you can do the outward, but miss what it's intended to do. That's why when you read the scriptures, and some people don't, let's say they don't quote it quite right. As long as they get the gist of what's being said, that's what matters. Not the letter. Exactly this, you know. It's, it's the spirit of the law. Uh, that's important here. And so, you can be obedient to the, sta- the, the laws and the statutes of the law and, and miss the real meaning of the law. And this is what was going on here. I think what we can look at here that's really important, as I mentioned before, is the good that came out of this. You know, sometimes, and I think this is really true of Christians, when we fall and we make mistakes, what if a Christian has a moral failure, um, I think the guilt he, that's heaped upon them the remorse is, is just amplified. And I think the devil's condemnation is extraordinarily hard. And, I, and the people just, you know, I think sometimes when, when we hear believers committing suicide, 
and this is a terrible thing. But this is the thing we have to remember when there is failure with Peter and others. God will use this for good. I don't know how he does it, but he does. And that's what it means. If you really love God, then the the promise of Romans 8.28 is for you. It's for me. All things work together for the good to those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. God used this failure of Peter in a very powerful way. It was good for Paul because he's, he was being tested too. Is he going to like, well, I didn't see that. <laughs> That's really easy to do, isn't it? As a parent, hey, I don't want to spank my kids anymore. I don't want to scold. I just didn't see that, right? <laughs> Grandkids, I never see anything wrong there. <laughs> that's her. That's their job. That's, that's mom and dad's job now. <laughs> I don't do that though. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> so it was good for Paul because he stayed true. It was good for Peter, right? Because he got straightened out. He got corrected. We all need correction on occasion. Uh, there's no doubt about it. And actually, he actually, probably after this, he was really strengthened in his resolve now. You know what? I'm like, yes, you're right, Paul. Man, I, and I slipped into that. And it was good for Barnabas because he knew what was right. He got carried away. I mean, man, oh, Peter's doing that. You know what? I probably should do it too. We can get, it's really easy to get sucked up in it. That's why I'm not going to judge other people. I mean, there's some other Calvary Chapel guys that are doing some stuff that I'm like, why are you doing that? Why do you believe that? I'm like, are you serious? You know, I got my reasons for why I don't believe that. But you know what? I don't know what, how they got there, who influenced them. And I got my issues. So you know what? They don't answer to me. They're going to answer to God. Now, if it comes into my realm of influence as it was here, and this is how we judge this. If you're responsible for something, and in this case, Paul, Paul and Barnabas were part of the leadership there. Everybody's looking to, how, how's this going to go down? We're feeling, the members in the Agape Feast were feeling like, wait a minute here. This doesn't quite feel right. And so Paul is, it's, it's really, he's responsible for what's going on there. So he's, he's obligated to stand up for what's right. So that's, what, that's how we know as pastors where we belong. This is my sphere of influence. What goes on out there? Well, that's going to be on you. That's between you and, and the Lord. And so, and I think it was really, it was good for the guys that came from Jerusalem, from James. Now, I don't think James sent them, hey, what's going on up there? I hear that these Jews and Gentiles are hanging out and eating together. We need to go up there and straighten them out. I don't think that was going on at all. I think they just say, hey, man, what's going on up here? We hear something like the Lord's really, there's revival up here, and it's really, we came up here to check it out. They probably weren't, you know, like, hey, Peter, what are you doing, man? <laughs> you know, I don't think that was going on at all. I just, I think it was, you know, Peter's, <laughs> poor Peter, <laughs> poor guy. He got put on the spot, right? And it was good for all the people in that church, right? Well, we thought this felt kind of funny when Peter started backing off, and we're glad you said something, because we were thinking, you know, because people aren't stupid, right? <laughs> we get it. So, 
Isn't it amazing how God used that? And you know why it happened that way? Because they were willing to stand up for the truth and they were willing to walk in love. And that's what, what's up. That's what God calls us to do, isn't it? To just stand up for the truth and walk in love. It isn't unloving to speak out and, and, and be straightforward with the truth. Actually, that is one of the most loving things you can do. It, what is important is that, that it's done with gentleness. I pray, you know, it should be a prayer of ours. We pray for boldness so that we might be gentle. Or we can pray for gentleness that we might be bold. There's, they reciprocate. You, if you are right, there's nothing stronger than gentleness. Isn't that what the scripture says in the Psalms? David proclaims, thy gentleness has made me great. David would have never have become the king of Israel had not Yahweh been gentle with his spiritual development, with his growth. From a youth and a lad to, to his persecutions, to his terrible mistakes all along. Who's more truer than Yahweh, right? Who's more truer than the Lord? And yet he is so gentle and so kind. So these are, these are good examples for us. And so not only is it good for Peter and Paul and Barnabas and the Jews, it's good for us. It's good for us to read this. And God bless us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for these examples that we can learn from these great men, Lord. Men that you, you wrote about and put in the scripture for us to learn from. Thank you for the scriptures, Lord. We're thankful that you're no respecter of persons. When someone does well, they're commended. When they make mistakes, they're not, it's not covered up. It's, it's, it, it's there for all of us to learn from, Lord. And so we ask that you'd keep us from error. Lord, we don't want to make mistakes. We don't want to be hypocritical in any way. We don't want to be judgmental and harsh and mean. But we do want to be faithful to you, faithful to the truth, and honest with ourselves. So help us to grow, Father. Help us to be loving and kind in all our ways, Lord just like you. In Jesus' name, amen.